The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the show, everyone. It is a Tuesday night. Looking forward to a great discussion. It's going to be very, very inspiring. Also a bit depressing. Rosemary Thornton will be our guest, and she has a tremendous story to share with us. Uh, it's It starts with her, with her husband's uh, horrible suicide, which I can't imagine uh, just experiencing that al- along with everything else she had to go through. But it ends up being a tale of optimism and inspiration. And that's the, the moral of the story here. And we'll let her tell the story, but we're looking forward to having her on the program. Uh, she's putting the story and her, her experience into a, a book called Remembering the Light, How Dying Saved My Life. It is not published yet, from what I understand. It is coming soon, but um, we'll hear most of what the story is about uh, when we have her on in just a few minutes. So looking forward to that. I was just chatting in, in our chat room here on YouTube about the fact that I just re-engaged with my son playing some Call of Duty. Yes, I play video games with my son on occasion. I haven't done it in a while, but um, got back on, played a little bit uh uh, I remembered how much I enjoyed doing that with him, and uh, so hopefully I'll get more opportunities to do that. You know, you know how you find those things you connect with your your kids on, um, and some. You know, my my son and I play music together too, so that's fun. But uh, he's not he's not local anymore, so connecting through uh, the internet to play video games together that's the way we're going to have to do it for now. Uh, but just having a bit of a chuckle talking about that in the chat room. If you're looking to find out where the chat room is, very easy to do. It's part of our, well, we've actually got two chat rooms. There's the YouTube channel, which has a live chat room. And then there's also the Twitch channel, which also has a live chat room. Either one is a is a perfectly fine place to be. I try to monitor both of them. And if there's questions that scroll through, I try to address them. If you do pose a question in our chat room, either one of them, Please uh, repeat it if I don't get to it right away, because sometimes I miss them, especially in the YouTube chat room. That one tends to be a bit busier. Uh, By the way, while you're at either place, Twitch or YouTube, please subscribe and or follow. We appreciate that. If you had subscribed to our channel on Twitch and you'd used your Amazon Prime account to do that, so there's no fee associated with it, it's a free uh, connection to the to anyone who has already subscribed to Amazon Prime. Those things expire every month. So you got to go back into Twitch and re-subscribe, remake that connection for us to keep our count up for us. I appreciate it. And that way uh, you have subscriber privileges on Twitch should you want to go there. We had a, 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 a night, I don't know, was it two weeks ago? Where YouTube was, wasn't working properly. So YouTube had some kind of failure going on so we had to use the twitch channel almost exclusively i think it came back later in the program but well into the discussion already so twitch was our primary mode of uh, of streaming for that particular night so it's good to have two it's good to have the backups by the way we do have a roku channel as well that is exciting it means that if you have a roku enabled television or a roku device you can add the channel uh, beyond reality paranormal channel to your, you know, list of icons there. You know how when you, if you have a Roku TV, you turn on the television, it's got all the icons. You can choose Netflix, you can choose Hulu or whatever it happens to be. And then uh, Beyond Reality be one of those icons on there. And these programs are archived there. We don't stream live there, but they're there for, uh, for viewing uh, the day after they air live. So it's a great way to catch up on the shows if you've missed one or two. And uh, you want to see what we've been talking about 
um, on recent shows. So we're happy to have that. Uh, what else? Podcast version of the show continues to do tremendously. Thank you to all of our podcast subscribers. It's really, really comforting to know you're there and that you use the show as yeah, a form of entertainment, whether you're commuting. I don't know how many people commute these days, given what's happening or what's been happening. Or you'd use it, you know, you know, it's a, it accompanies your morning coffee or whatever it happens to be. Thank you for being a podcast listener. So anyway, a lot going on here. Uh, I want to get to our guests. So we're going to take a break right now. And when we come back, we will have um, our guest. Again, tonight we're talking with Rosemary Thornton. She's going to talk about her experiences, which go from despair to uh, basically elation and optimism. It's, it's, quite a, it's quite an account and quite a story. Looking forward to talking to Rosemary, and we'll be right back and do that. Hey, it's JV here. You know I've asked for your support in the past, and I'm going to do it again because it's really, really important. And there are a couple of ways you can support the show, and it's so inexpensive. Now, you can go to Patreon, and you can become a Patreon supporter, and we really, really encourage that. But there's also another way. If you look at the description of the podcast, if you're a podcast listener, and you scroll down to the bottom, there's a way to support the show directly through the podcast app and it's only 99 cents a month it's less than a buck you probably have that change in your couch right now that dollar a month less than a dollar goes a long way in helping us produce this program provide great interviews for you during the course of the week i thank you in advance because the support is so important to the program when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, welcome back to the show. It's Beyond Reality. I'm your host, JV. Again, thank you for joining us tonight. We've got a terrific conversation ahead of us. Looking forward to talking to our guest, Rosemary Thornton, will be our guest tonight. She's the author of a book which accounts her experience that we'll be discussing. The book is called Remembering the Light, How Dying Saved My Life. It is not yet published. It is on the way very soon. Rosemary, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's such a treat to have you with us tonight. Thank you so much. It's a treat to be here. So your your story goes from, it's jaw-dropping to begin with, and it goes from uh, almost unbelievably horrifying to even more horrifying to unbelievably optimistic and reassuring and regenerative. It, I mean, it's an amazing story. I don't even know where to begin, but maybe let's let's kind of, you know, turn the clock back here to when this all starts to begin for you? Okay, well, I guess the story begins with my uh, my husband's suicide. I thought he was the love of my life. I thought he was the answer to a lifetime of prayers. I married him when I was in my, I guess I was about 45, and uh, I not a day passed, not one day passed that I didn't literally thank God that I had met this man. He was an attorney. He was a successful litigator. And it just seemed like uh, all my dreams had come true. And then uh, I, I cannot begin to describe how completely out of the blue this happened, but uh, he called me one day from work, and uh, I was out of town at the time, and he started an argument, and it was all very odd. And then he, um, he hung up on me, and uh, uh, a few minutes later, I, I don't know how much later, maybe an hour, I got a call from a neighbor that my husband's body had been found. He had, um, he had 
put a gun in his mouth and pulled the trigger. And I lost my mind, and I, I lost my faith. I had, I had been very, very much a beyond believer. I had leaned heavily on God throughout my life. And as I said, even in my wedding vows when I married this man, I publicly proclaimed my gratitude that God had brought this man to my life. So a lot of things died when my husband pulled that trigger, but one of the biggies was my faith. I, I couldn't imagine how, how I, I was so clear that this man was so right for me and, and for, it to, for it to end this way. So I, and I had been living in my dream home. I mean, I had been a writer. I'd been a newspaper reporter. I'd, I'd done some magazine writing. I'd, I'd done ad copy. I'd written everything for everybody. And, you know, writers are the original starving artist. And in marrying an attorney, Oh, my financial problems had ceased. I no right. longer had to worry about keeping me and the dog in kibble. So, but all that absolutely reversed with his death. So I'd been living in a beautiful home, our marital home, and I left that house after the funeral and never spent the night there again. I actually lived out of my car for a time because I lost my mind. I mean, I, I, I don't know if I had a psychotic break, but I lost my mind. And I couldn't see any way out of this nightmare. And friends stepped forward and took care of me and took me into their home. And I lost, uh, I probably lost 40 pounds. I lost so much weight. I couldn't eat. I physically could not swallow food. I was living on in uh, those liquid nutrition drinks yeah. that they use for old people. And uh, it, it just, and it seemed like, I don't know, I know at one point, I guess about six months out, I was still out of my mind. And uh, a financial advisor sat me down and said, let's, let's do some planning. Let's talk about the future. Where do you see yourself in two years? And without missing a beat, I said, oh, I'll be dead in two years. I can't survive this. Nobody's expected to survive this much trauma. And, you know, she fussed and carried on and said that's not helpful. But I meant it. It was very clear to me this, this was not survivable. Because there were, there are many elements of it. One, my husband did leave a note in the form of a forward te- a forward text message, which he knew the cops would find. I mean, lawyers are pretty smart about dealing with law enforcement, and they did. And word spread far and wide that Wayne's my husband's last words blamed me for his suicide, oh. and that was awful. Uh, I, I awful doesn't begin to describe it. So, uh, so my life went at about I guess about the seven month mark. I moved into a rental home, and my friend who had been taking care of me moved in with me because I was still not able to take care of myself. I was still losing weight. I I just, it was, I can't begin to describe the horror of it. You know, the American Psychological Association, I wish I could cite it, but there was a quotation from them that said, the suicide of a spouse or a child may be the most difficult human trauma that we can experience on this earth because it's not just death. It's the what if. Yeah. Could I have stopped this? Could I have done something? Uh, you know, and, and you talk about guilt. And I was very sensitive. I was a writer. I'd written several books. I wrote about uh, old houses. And I, I was not prepared for this, anything like this. I mean, how can you be? No but as a writer, I, it yeah. really hit me extra hard. So uh, my buddy moved in. We, we shared a home, which helped financially. And we had a three-bedroom, two-bath brick ranch that I rented, and that worked out well, and he took care of me. And like I said, I was still losing weight, still wasn't right in the head, and uh, hadn't even mastered the art of putting on a show, so I even looked normal. So I stayed stayed pretty much in hiding. And, and then uh, I, I got a little bit better as time passed. But you know what did not leave me was... And, and this is a big deal, and I, I won't go off on a tangent on this, but 
suicide survivors, such as myself, people who have lost a close loved one to suicide, are 12 to 48 times more likely than the average person to end their own life. So if we want to talk about how to stop suicide, we need to stop treating people like me as lepers, which is pretty much how I was treated by many, and say, wow, we have identified a risk group. Let's save them. Mm. So I I dealt mightily with suicidal ideation and temptations. I was under psychiatric care. I had therapists. I was on, they were trying all kinds of drugs to kind of help me. But I was a mess, and I made a plan. I made a plan how to end my life. And it was very clear. It was very distinct. I had a place. I had a means. I had it all. And I also knew, having been through this gamut of psychiatric care, I knew that the smartest thing to do was keep my mouth shut. And I knew that if I told anybody one word about my plan, Mm -hmm. that they would try to intervene and stop me. Right. So even though I started looking like, hey, she's getting better, she's starting to dress herself, she's starting to eat, uh, she's starting to show up in the world from time to time, I was working this plan. In fact, um, so about 29 months out. Yeah, I, I was keeping a gratitude journal, I guess, in the last few months. But one of the things I wrote in my gratitude journal, and this was, this would have been August of 2018, shortly before uh, my NDE. But I wrote in there, I did not kill myself today. It was a win. And that was a recurring theme. So even 28, 29 months after my husband's suicide, I was still battling these enormous suicidal temptations. And I was running out of road. I was running out of the ability to say, no, I I can't do this. So then in, uh, gosh, I guess late August 2018, I was doing some yard work, felt something happen internally, went in the bathroom, saw, saw there was a little bit of blood coming from the lady parts, and I went to a doctor and actually ended up, got, ended up going to a couple doctors and was diagnosed with cervical cancer, stage 2. And I was like, come on now, God, I've been pretty clear in my prayers at night. I asked you to either heal me or let me die, but not slowly. You know, let's, let's, if, if we're going to take her out, let's do this quickly. And my other prayer, and this is no joke, my other prayer had been that God would spare me a life review. I knew I wasn't going to last long. And I asked God, you know, we hear about people who have near-death experiences, and they talk about a life review. I had suffered with the most horrific nightmares. I mean, yeah. my husband did this with a gun at our home. He put it in his mouth. And I had a recurring nightmare that I, 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 I ran. I, I saw him just as he did it in my nightmare. And so I lived through his suicide in my nightmares again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And again. Uh-huh. So my prayer was, spare me this life of you. I don't want to see what he did. I don't want to see myself fall apart. I don't want to see the day at the funeral home when they couldn't put him back together. And even though they billed me $14,000, you know, they I, I didn't want to see any piece or part of what I had been through. And then my third prayer that I prayed every single night was... Uh, I can't handle any more decisions. There were so many decisions, and I was on my own. So those are my three prayers. Heal me or let me die. No life review, and uh, uh, I can't handle these decisions anymore. So I end up at an oncologist, a gynecological oncologist. He says, you know, I can see we're going to do a biopsy to figure out exactly how far this is spread, but I can see from looking at you, it's, it's already developed to a point where the flesh is distorted. He said, it's, you know, we, we can see that. So you get checked into a hospital. They do a cervical biopsy. I was scared out of my wits. I had always leaned on God for healing. I'm a big believer that Western medicine may not be the way to go. I had always very much believed in trusting God and calming down and looking at the good. And I just couldn't believe this was happening to me. I mean, yeah. you know, how many traumas does a person need in a lifetime? So I go in for the biopsy, and they put you under. I mean, it's, they give you a general anesthetic, actually propofol, and they knock you out. And 
uh, I woke up from this thing, and uh, I was bleeding an awful lot uh, from the cervical biopsy. And the RN attending me said, oh, once you get home and lie down, you'll feel better. And I told her two more times. I'm grateful to say I had a witness. Told her three times in total. I said, "Listen, I'm I'm 59 years old, and I've been I've been in this body for quite a bit, and uh, something's gone wrong here." But anyway, they sent me home like that, bleeding profusely. Got home, uh, my house. I had a house with white carpet, and when you're bleeding to, to death, of course, you don't want to mess up the carpet. <laughs> I was very concerned about making a mess on that carpet. So I, I literally, I had a beautiful walk-in shower, white tiled. I went and stood. I, I couldn't figure out how to not make a mess. You know, I'm still bleeding everywhere. You know, it's kind of amazing. They say bleeding to death is a peaceful way to go. I guess I can speak with some authority on that. It is, except the amount of anxiety. And, and I've read that's a common side effect of blood loss, mm. sanguination as it's known. It's the anxiety ramps up. And part of the reason is your brain cannot process what is happening. Yeah. You know, your, your brain is, is oxygen uh, heavy, blood rich, and when you start losing blood, your brain starts kind of getting throttled back a little bit. So I became very anxious, and I I remember thinking, man, I you know I may be dying, but I sure don't want to mess up this white carpet. So I went and I stood in my bathroom, and I stood in the shower, didn't even have a shower on, just trying not to make a mess of the house. And I remember thinking, you know what, maybe this is God's mercy. I've been praying every night, every day that God would heal me or let me go, and obviously I'm not getting healed. So maybe this is merciful. Maybe this is the way out that Paul talks about in Corinthians, that God will show you a way out. I said, maybe this is my way out. And I really I really thought, you know, maybe that's right. And it gave me a lot of peace. And so I'm standing in the shower, and I'm thinking, okay, it's time for a decision, because if you want to hang around, you need to do something. And if not, I thought, I can just sit down on the shower floor. A couple friends uh, actually, their names were Mildred and Mabel, had driven me home from the hospital, and they were right on the other side of that bathroom wall. And I thought, you know, by the time they get in here and find me, I'll be gone. And once I, I knew once I sat down, that'd be it, because I was getting pretty wobbly. So I thought about it, and I thought, oh, jeez. I thought, you know, is that really fair to them to come in this bathroom and see their friend that they've been trying? Milton was the one who kept me alive for 29 months. Is that really fair? You come in this bathroom, see me splayed on the floor, a mess, bled to death. And I thought, oh, jeez, I guess it's not. So I, while I was still on my feet, I walked out into the living room and told them I was bleeding to, to death and called 911. And it's so funny. I thought they'd be, oh, you'll be okay. Everything will be fine. And they were like, we're on it. So I was taken to an ER, not the hospital from which I'd been discharged, but a very small ER, standalone ER. It did not have a hospital connected to it. And there I had a doctor that, you know, so young, I kind of looked at the stethoscope around her neck and expected it to say play school on it. I mean, she was very young. <laughs> and I was like, you know, this this isn't feeling real good. And uh, I was also attended by an RN there that was about my age and very motherly and very kind. And at this point, I was, you know, I was like, okay, I've decided to live. Let's get this show on the road. And I grabbed this nurse's hand, and I, 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 I this must happen to nurses not infrequently, but I said, promise me you're not going to let me die. And she got right in my face, and almost like she, she could not have been any sweeter to me if she were my own dear mother. She said, oh, honey, we're not going to let you die. We have many solutions for this. 
So I, you know, I don't know what was happening. My buddy Milton was in the little ER cubicle with me, and the, the doctor examined me. And then this, this is really interesting. They gave me a shot of Dilaudid, which is a powerful morphine derivative. So were, I were really you in think pa- that, Were you in pain? Well, I had been in pain. They did a physical exam, and that mm-hmm. caused excruciating pain. Oh, okay. So that's why they gave me the Dilaudid, which is a derivative of morphine. And, yeah. man, that stuff, I really do believe that kind of greased the skids because yeah. I was already down a couple pints. And, you know, so then uh, they left the room, and they left me hooked up to a pulse ox and a blood pressure machine. And uh, so there's Milton left alone in the room with me, and he says, this is so cool to me. He says, well, it's cool now. But he said, after that Dilaudid, I passed out pretty quick. But it said, he said, at one point, he looked up at the blood pressure machine, and my blood pressure was 32 over 25. Wow. And which is pretty much dead. Yeah. But they also stuffed me with gauze like a Christmas goose, you know. I mean, they just, and the thing is, when they stuffed me with gauze, it didn't stop the bleeding. It just stopped the mess. Oh. So that turned out to be a boo-boo, too. So uh, Milton said, when my blood pressure hit 32 over 25, he said he was standing up to go get the, the doctor, and he said, my eyes popped open. And he said, and you tried to sit up on the gurney. And I thought, well, that's pretty impressive with somebody, blood pressure at 32 over 25. And he said, you reached up to heaven and talked to somebody that only you could see. And he said, you wiggled your fingers as if you were reaching up for a parent to pick you up. And he said, and after that, you just flopped lifeless back on that gurney and then the blood pressure went to error and by then an alarm had gone off and they came running in <laughs> this also kind of cracks me up but i'm also easily amused but he said they uh <laughs> they fiddled with the plug on the blood pressure machine they fiddled with the cuff they they were thinking the blood pressure machine had failed they weren't considering you know occam's razor the most obvious yeah. solution is the patient has failed so uh, but, yeah, they fiddled around with me for a while, then realized I was dead. And so they shooed him out into the uh, hallway, and then he said, you know, at about 100 miles an hour, uh, you know, the crash cart comes whizzing around the corner as they try to get me back. But so Milton is out there. Milton's been taking care of me for 29 months, and now, you know, this is the ending. And uh, and, and the beauty part, the back, real quick backstory, Milton had always been a very proud atheist, and he actually, while we were living together, he subscribed to a magazine called American Atheist, and it came once a month in the mail, and he'd show it to me, and he'd say, you know, this is really very intelligently written. Would you like to read a copy of it? <laughs> and I'd always say, oh, you keep that to yourself. I don't, you know, I, I, God is real. God is, God is love. God is light. I don't need to read about atheism. So Milton's standing out in the hallway of this cor- in this corridor of this little ER, and he's thinking, wow, she's gone for 29 months. I've tried to keep her alive. I've taken care of her dog. I've tried to get her to have something for dinner once a day. And he said he was thinking, what do I do now? You know, where do I go? What do I do? And he said an angel came to him in that hallway, and he said it was like somebody put a big blanket of warmth and comfort around his shoulders. And the message was, She's, we just need her for a few minutes. She'll be coming back. Don't worry. And he said it was like all that thought about, oh, no, what do I do? And I said, it just evaporated. He was like, oh, okay, she's coming back. And he went out in the lobby and bought himself a sodi from the vending machine. And I said, you what? <laughs> <laughs> it's not like I was in there for a strep throat test. You watched me bleed to death. 
So he was so comforted, so convinced of this simple message. So meanwhile, I am having the time of my life. At the moment of my death, I had been, I guess, in a, like best I can describe, it's like a deep, dreamless state. And at the moment of my death, I popped out of that body like toast out of a toaster. The best word I can use is catapulted. I was literally catapulted out of that body, and I awakened being thrown out of this body. And I mean thrown. It was very dr- draconian, very dramatic. And I'm, I'm, you know, catapulting through the air, and my first thought is, uh, my heart has stopped. Whoa, how do I know that? I thought, I don't know how I know that, but I know that's right. My heart has stopped. I'm dying. Now, being a lifelong writer and doing a lot of editing through the years and working as an editor, my next thought is, actually, you're not dying. You're dead. Because, you know, when you're going on to your reward, the most important thing is getting your tense right, you know? <laughs> and I, <laughs> I thought, that's funny. That's really funny. And I laughed out loud, and I heard myself giggle. And I thought, whoa, I don't have breath sounds pretty sure I don't have lungs and I know I don't I don't think I have ears and yet I'm producing sound not like that but I'm still darn funny with my same macabre sense of humor (laughs) and I thought every single thing I am has made this transition with me my goofball sense of humor my unique giggle my voice my uh, you know my my deep voice my my interest in the world and it I'm I'm also, I'm in ham radio, and the best analogy I can give is, like, I've been living my whole life at 60 amps, and somebody had turned the rheostat up to 100,000 amps, and suddenly I had this massive awareness of everything happening around me. I had memories of Bible verses, memories of things that had happened, and what's so remarkable, even in this new experience where I'm still floating in this blackness, this perfect blackness, I remember thinking, I'm free. I'm clear. I'm out. And I didn't do it to myself. My children will not know the horror of what my husband did to me. They won't know the horror of saying my mother offed herself. And I think it's remarkable that in this heavenly experience, that memory of my husband's suicide and the accompanying horror of it all was still with me. So I, I was very grateful to be in this new experience. I kept thinking, I'm so happy. This is great. I got away clean. I truly felt, no kidding, one of the thoughts that crossed my mind or consciousness was, uh, I did it. I'm, I'm free and clear. And I remember thinking um, it felt like I had gotten off early for good behavior, like I'd been released early for good behavior. It really felt like that. I mean, here I was, 59. I've been a remarkably healthy woman. I was, I was done. I was over. I also remember thinking as a writer, I thought, you know, my whole life I wonder what would take me out. It's kind of interesting as a, uh, as a lifelong Christian scientist, it's my one encounter with the medical world and they kill me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was really funny. I thought, you know, Rosemary, only you could have a cervical biopsy and die from it. So I was having all these thoughts and it was like it was all at once. And in this new experience, shortly after I'm floating away in this black, still floating, I feel the presence of a massive, massive spiritual being with me. And and it wasn't he or she. It was just this being. It was everything. And this being was much taller than me and slightly behind me and to my left. And I'm like, whoa, this could not 
possibly get any better. And I turned my head slightly to my left, even though I'm in this perfect blackness, I turn my head slightly to my left and look up and I say, literally, with a lilt in my voice, I say, and who are you? <laughs> and the answer, before I could even finish the sentence, the answer was, you, Rosemary, you are the image and likeness. I'm the original. And I thought, whoa, that's uh, first Genesis 20, or Genesis 1, 26. And I thought my whole life, I've wondered, what does that mean that we're made in the image and likeness of God? Now I got it because it didn't just come with words. It came with an infusion of knowledge. And I thought about the Bible verse in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I thought, these are the words of God. They're not just words. They come with this infusion of knowing. And I just thought, this is so great. This is so cool. And on and on and on this went. And if you had told me that I, when I came back from this, if you had told me that I had been dead for, I don't know, two hours, I would have believed it. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I mean, this did go on and on and on and on. I know we only have an hour. But ultimately, after this blackness, I, and I don't remember the transition. One minute I'm floating in this blackness, and, and in the next I'm on my feet. And I'm in the white room, and there's this super fine mist, almost like a fog, falling around me in this white room. And the floors are white, the ceiling's white, the walls are white, and there's no light. Every The white is creating the white, which is creating the white. It was just this luminescent, bright, 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 bright white, and all these droplets. And now I have a, another spiritual being, but it feels like, it feels like I guess the word would be an angel. And this... I'm trying, this sounds nuts, but I'm trying to focus on one of these individual droplets that's just swirling around me, like a dance. It was like it was dancing in, in perfect harmony, all these little droplets of light. And I, I tried to focus on an individual droplet of light, and I turned to my angel companion, and I said, I want to see one of these droplets. Why can't, why can't I focus on it? And I mean, imagine being in a pea soup fog and thinking, oh, I'll look at one of the droplets. That's kind of akin to what it was. But the angelic companion said, your eyes have not acclimated to this new experience yet. But what you're seeing, every little piece of particulate substance is light. It's actually light that's encircling you. And I was told that whether we believe we've died from a disease process or an accident or whatever the cause, we are taken to this white room and this white light just permeates us in every way so that we are restored to our innate wholeness and our spiritual perfection as a child of God. It helps us remember who we were and who we are. And as a friend said, I thought that was a great analogy, she said, leave your muddy boots at the door. That We do not pass into heaven with these horrible images of disease or sadness or pain or burden or suffering imprinted on us, that that's what this white room is for. So I'm in this white room, and I don't know, 15, 20 feet ahead, maybe 30, I see a door. And I remember thinking, I don't know if I have feet, I wish I'd looked, or legs, but I thought, I know if I move with intention toward that door, I'll get it. And all my life, I had read every NDE story, book, article I could get my hands on. I loved reading these things. I mean, I read every book from Raymond Moody when it came out in, what, 76? Mm -hmm. Life After Life, Daniel Brinkley, I read Betty Eady, I read George Ritchie, I read all of them, read them over and over and over. I knew that door. I knew that door meant the line of demarcation between between going back, maybe, and going on. And I had not 
one thought of going back. I Again, I was just so grateful it was over, and I had not done this to myself. I was so happy, so unbelievably happy. So I see that door, and I move to the door, and I get to the door, and uh, I I pause. Oh, my gosh. And I'm with this angelic being, and I paused at the door, and I, I asked, is this the divine will for my life? Is this how it's supposed to be, that at age 59, a medical mistake takes me out? Because when you're in that place, all you want to do is the will of God. All you want to do is glorify God. It's, and, and so before I could even get the words out, the answer was immediate, immediate. The answer was no, but whatever you decide, you go with all of God's love and mercy and grace and blessings. There is not a wrong decision. And that meant so much to me. I mean, you talk about decision fatigue, deciding to go to heaven or go back. That's a biggie. (laughs) That's a big one. (laughs) That's a biggie. So I put my right hand up to push through this door, pretty interested by the fact that I'm right-handed in heaven, right-handed on earth, right-handed in heaven. I thought, that's kind of funny. So much, everything of what we are goes with us. I thought that's pretty cool. And as I had my right hand up, I mean, I'm poised and ready because I'm like, okay, I'm on it. Either way, blessings, blessings, blessings. I'm, I'm going. Do not ask me to go back. I'm going. As I do this, I have a vision. And by vision, I mean, it was like suddenly I was, I was seeing, I was like seeing through time and space. And I saw that same nurse that so tenderly held my hand, promised me I wouldn't die. I saw her sitting in a hospital supply room, surrounded by linens and, you know, hospital medical stuff and everything. But I see her. She's sitting on a metal stool, and she's leaning forward with her head in her hands, and she's sobbing uncontrollably. And through tears, she says, I promised that woman I wasn't going to let her die, and I've lost her. And I thought, ah, come on. (laughs) Do not do this to me. And people have asked, was that a concurrent event? No, this I believe this was a potential future event. I mean, they were busy working on the old dead bot trying to get me back. But then I thought, you know what? She's an RN. I saw her little name tag. She signed up for this. You know, she's she's lost people before she'll get over it. Give her some time. She'll move on. You know. And then uh, and then I didn't just see her. I experienced her agonal grief. And I thought, I know that grief. That's the grief I've known for 29 months. That's the pain that doesn't leave you. It stays with you. And that got me real bad. I felt her grief in my, if you could say it, in my solar plexus, at the center of everything I am, I felt her grief. And I thought, you know, if I can spare one soul that much pain, I think I have to go back. And I put my right hand back down at my side, and in the millisecond, millisecond of a millisecond, I was back in that body. And, and, and something I should mention here, something that was communicated to me, and again, I'm not, I'm not sure how, I'm not sure how, but something that was communicated to me at some point was if I agreed to go back, I would be healed of everything. And, you know, it's one thing to be healed of cancer, and I'm not diminishing that, but I was promised that I would be healed of the grief. And and so I, I it's just a millisecond between when I put my hand down by that door in heaven and I was back on the gurney. And now there was a lot of people and a lot of action, a lot of stuff happening. 
and and they were uh, as soon as I was conscious again on that gurney in that little ER, that nurse was back in my face and she said, "What is your name?" And I said, "Rosemary." And she said, "What year is it?" And I said, "2018." And she said, "Where are you?" And I said, "A crummy excuse for an ER." And <laughs> I did say that. I think they were convinced at that point that it had been they had they done the right thing in bringing bringing me back. As it turned out, I'd actually been dead. Uh, for more than 10 minutes wow. with no heartbeat, no blood pressure. And the reason that's significant is when somebody dies from exsanguination, from a wound that they bleed out from, they can't even do CPR right? because all it does is push more blood out. So for 10 minutes, there was no oxygen to my brain. And I have read this story to a handful of medical professionals, and they, many of them just begin to cry when I talk about the nurse saying, you know, what is your name? Because often when they do successfully get the heart going again, the, there's a significant, uh, what's the word, neurological impairment. Sure. So it's, it, that, that is a standalone fact is remarkable. And then uh, as the days passed, there were all kinds, because I was put in a hospital for a while. As the days passed, there were many expectations of things that had gone awry. The first day in the hospital, then I got the real doctor. This is what's really cool is after you die and come back, they give you the real doctor. They give you the doctor that's 55 years old <laughs> and has been around the block a few times and isn't going to say things like, oh, put some gauze in her. She'll be A-OK. No, I got the real doctor. And he, he sat down with me the next morning and because I'm in a hospital bed. They had me on 100% bed rest. And he said, you had a massive heart attack. And I said, not me. I bike. I walk. I'm fine. Not me. And he said, no, no, no. Your enzymes are way, were way elevated last night. This morning, they're already coming back down. But he said, uh, he said, you lost so much blood, your heart stopped. And that was very affirming because that was the first thing I heard That's in right. this new experience was mm-hmm. my heart had stopped. And uh, they believed I had suffered significant heart damage. And, you know, they took me in for all, they, 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 you know, wheel your gurney down these hallways. And they did some blood, uh, not blood tests, they did heart tests, an echocardiogram and something else. And at every point in turn, you know, there was an expectation that my heart was damaged. There was an expectation that my blood circulation was impaired. There was an expectation that my arteries weren't opening back up. And at every point in turn, everything was perfect. My heart was perfect. Kidney function was perfect. Everything was perfect. And I was telling them, I said, you know, the angel said if I agreed to come back, I'd, I'd be healed. And, and there were so many, so many elements to this. And, again, I'm trying to be mindful of the time. But ultimately it was affirmed that uh, I, I had to get another oncologist. It turns out when you come back from heaven and say, guess what? I will not be needing the six weeks of chemo and the daily radiation. I'm going to take a hard pass on that. It turns out not all oncologists are on board with that. <laughs> uh, I had to find another oncologist in another part of the state, but, you know, oops. But, uh, and, and she insisted, the second oncologist insisted on doing a lot of biopsies. And, uh, in fact, she, um, she did a lot of stuff. But ultimately she said, because uh, she first reported to my buddy Milton again, you know, this was they, they put him back in the hospital two weeks later or two months later for this second set of biopsies. And uh, that oncologist slash surgeon, uh, after they had biopsied lots of things in lots of places, she ran to my buddy Milton out there waiting because she'd been pretty nervous too. You know, that's putting an oncologist in the spot too when you say, I was healed in heaven, I won't be needing chemo. <laughs> uh, she literally ran out of the 
surgery doors there and out to the waiting room, threw her arms around my buddy's neck and said, she's right. Not only is not one cell of cancer present, but she said her flesh is so pink and pretty and perfect. I, I don't think she's ever had cancer. Wow. So we went from distorted flesh and multiple tests to pink and pretty and perfect. And that was a pretty big deal, but the bigger healing was the healing of my soul. I was able to forgive myself for whatever I thought I'd done involving ending my husband, you know, messing up my husband. I forgave my husband. I forgave the people that had treated me so horribly after his suicide. I forgave the people who had blamed me openly, publicly. I, I forgave lots of people for lots of things. I saw life in a new light. As soon as I was back home from the hospital, I sold off all of my earthly possessions. I sold off my car. I sold my home. I listed my home, and it was sold in two hours. I sold every single thing. I had a bunch of research materials. I'd written nine books on old houses. I donated, uh, not sold, I donated all the research materials to a local library. And then I bought a slightly used Prius, and I drove a 1,000 miles due west to the Midwest. Wow. There are so many parts of that story that are worthy of a, a whole show on its on, on their own. <laughs> I mean, seriously. But I want to try to get through some of this and and uh, get get a little bit more detail, a little bit more explanation. I want to take you all the way back to the beginning of how you began the discussion. First of all, how long were you married to your husband? Ten years. It was ten years. And how, what happens to your worldview, Rosemary, when you, you know, you, in one minute you think you're living an idyllic life, you know, you have everything that you've wanted, you know, you, you feel, you feel settled, you feel happy, you feel um, fulfilled, and in an instant that all changed in a very horrific and tragic way. And you had intimated that you were, uh, you know, you leaned on God all your life and you were, you know, you prayed and you you look to God for strength in everything you did. What happens to that worldview, you know, in the in the days following such a such a an abrupt and immediate change in in what you believed was an idyllic life? Well, I have often said that that that, that one bullet killed a lot of things. I've I've said that bullet killed his body, my soul, and my belief system. But in fact. I was in Boston. We were living in Virginia at the time. I was in Boston visiting my daughter, and I, you know, as soon as the call came, I literally got right back on a plane and came right back home. And I ended up in Baltimore trying to get home. And boy, talk about a horrible day, being a crowded airport and just trying to get home. Yeah. You know, get home, get home, get home. And in Baltimore, Southwest Airlines had a flight, and it was two two people. Uh, what's the word? Two seats oversold. They said we can't get you on that. And I said a prayer and I said, God, I got to get home get me home and suddenly three people didn't show up for the flight wow so yeah so southwest and and you know god bless them i don't know if you're allowed to do commercial endorsement <laughs> but they literally held the plane for me and i went running down the corridor and i remember they'd given me a boarding pass and i went running down the corridor toward the waiting plane that would take me from baltimore to norfolk and uh the uh agent the the ticket agent there kind of came running toward me and she said are you are you Miss Thornton? I said, yes. She said, you know, she grabbed the boarding pass and said, keep running. So I end up on this plane, and there's only one seat left. And uh, I see, I end up seated next to this guy that's got on a black leather uh, sleeveless 
coat, I guess a vest. He's got tattoos all over him, piercings all over him, rough-looking cat. And I sit down next to him, and uh, as we get to take off and, you know, the plane's rolling. I mean, they literally, the second I was on that plane, they swam the door behind me and took off. So I'm talking to him, and I said, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not much of a seatmate right now. And I told him the very short version of what should happen, what, what had happened. And he said, I want you to remember the rest of your time that God put you next to me here. He said, my mother did something very similar to me. She called me one day. She started a terrible argument. She hung up on me. And then she put a gun to her head and ended her life. Oh, man. And I thought, he said, and what he said was, I know you feel right now like God has abandoned you. He said, but I want you to remember the rest of your days that God is here with you. Because of everybody that you could have ended up seated next to on a southwest plane into Norfolk, you're next to me. And he talked to me. He talked to me a lot. And he said that at first, he said, you don't think you'll ever get over this. And he said, and then there comes a day when you go five minutes without thinking about it. And then maybe there's a day where you go an hour without crying. And then eventually there comes a day when you go 24 hours without crying. And he he explained the whole process in some detail. But that, I had so many experiences like that. Did you realize, even though you're saying, God, I am not speaking to you ever again, that you are, because you might be mad, but you're still speaking yeah. to him. So, yeah. yes, there were many experiences Rosemary, like that, how did, but it was how very did you, hard. I mean, this, this is a bit of a trite question, but how did you travel by yourself knowing what had happened at home and hold it together? I can't even imagine, you know, being able to go through the mechanics of getting onto a plane let alone going through the process to do it and do and and actually having a conversation with somebody in the seat next to you i mean i almost feel like you were in the hands of god at that point you know that is i've i've done a lot of interviews and that i have never been asked that and that is a beautiful question that is probably the best question i've been asked in a mighty long time i don't know uh i mean i as an author i traveled a lot but I was out of my mind. I was in deep shock. And something my seatmate, his name was Dale, by the way, something Dale had said to me, he said, considering what you've just been through, you're incredibly composed. He said, I don't, you know, he said, you're doing pretty darn good. You may think you're falling apart, but you're hiding it pretty well. So I don't know, but I, I really appreciate your asking that. I never thought of that. I, I just, I don't know. It but also, I did. It, I, I, I made it back. It also occurs to me that while your story, and we'll get to your, your, your actual near-death experience when you were in a place that we'll call heaven for the moment, um, but we talk about angels. You talk about the angelic experiences you had there, but it seems to me you had angels assisting you every step of the way, not just through that day, but through the many months following that day, um, right up to the point where you had a had a nurse tell you, no, honey, we're not going to let you die, um, who ultimately became your inspiration for living uh, when you had the choice to make. There were angels almost every step of the way helping you, it seems. 
There were, and I, I actually had this in my book, and I removed it, but there, I, I was taking a lot of Ativan. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's a benzodiazepine intended to relieve panic attacks, and one of the side effects, it has a bounce, they call it. It's suicide, uh, suicidal ideation. So uh, there was there came a day when I got a terrible, terrible, I got stuck on a train. I couldn't get off. It was very bad. And this was about a year after his death, so I was still pretty messed up. So I took four Ativan at once trying to calm down. Well, the next day I'm driving myself home. I was four hours away from home, and the next day I'm driving myself home, and I realized, I realized with great clarity that this is the time to kill myself. That this is, this was, why hadn't I thought about this before? This would solve everybody's problems. My daughters would be set free. My friends would be relieved. Everything would work out if I just killed myself. So I actually drove uh, to a place that I knew had uh, a mile long coal cars fully loaded. You know, you can't stop a freight train with a, uh, 300 coal cars fully loaded. And I drove to that place and I waited for the train to come. I was in my Camry and I just waited for the train to come through. And I mean, I, I hadn't pulled on the tracks. I knew where to park, I knew where to wait, and I knew when the train would be through. I had it all planned out. And I was sitting there waiting for that. And I thought, well, do I stand in front of it or do I do the car? And I thought, no, 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 you can see it coming far enough just to get out of the car, stand in front of it. So, I mean, this was very clear to me that this was the right thing to do. And as I'm thinking about, thank God, you know, I, I, I know what to do now. And this, again, this was a year after he killed himself and about a year and a half before my own NDE. As I'm making the plan and writing a lo lovely note to the fam and saying, this isn't your fault, this is all me, I heard an angel speak very distinctly, and she said, this is the drugs, this isn't you, and this is not a good idea. And it was so profound. I mean, she spoke to me very clearly, and she said, don't do this. Your brain is distorted by chemicals, and this is a trick, and don't fall for it. And I thought, I don't know what to believe. And so I called my friend Milton, and I said, hey, I'm having a kind of a, a tough decision right here. <laughs> and I said, so the angel said, this is my brain messing me up, and this is not a good choice. I said, but I think it is, because everybody needs to be set free from rosemary. Everybody needs to be relieved of the burden that I am to society, to friends, to family. And Milton said, the angel is right. So that was a very specific encounter with an angel that reached through the fog of drugs. I have to ask you about those suicidal thoughts. Can you, in retrospect, understand where they were coming from? Did you feel guilt over what happened to your husband? Or did you was, was the agony of the loss so great that it, that it made you have those kind of thoughts? Or was it a combination of that or something else? Well, my husband was a very strong man. I believe his motives were a little different, um, and I don't even want to get into that. But he he um, he was angry uh, when he did this um, because I, I mean I wrote a beautiful note uh, uh, alleviating everybody of any responsibility for this action I was planning to take. I think in my own case it it was too much. You know, they say, oh, God doesn't give us more than we can handle. I think God does give us more than hand, than we can handle, and then we have to learn how to lean on God. Yeah. Uh, people who called me strong made me very angry. I am not strong. I am, I am way too sensitive. And if you put enough weights on somebody's shoulders, eventually their knees will buckle. And the weight of all of this, it wasn't just my whole life going away in the blink of an eye. It was the way people treated me. I became a modern-day leper 
people treated me very badly. Two years after his death, I heard from one of our friends. Because, I mean, I was an author with some success. Mm -hmm. He was a big deal litigator. You know, we had these great parties at our beautiful home on the lake. And, you know, those folks all disappeared. (laughs) And you know who stepped in to save me was the people that were on the periphery of my life. People who really didn't even know me that well, but they saw me sinking below the waves, and they're the ones who stepped in to save me. But as to my own my own desire to do this, I believe it was a devilish temptation. I really do. I don't think this—I I think suicide is just when our brain—I mean, suicide has so many causes. It has as many causes as it has victims. Yeah. But in my own case, I do believe it was just the darkness that overtook everything. You um, ended up uh, being diagnosed with cancer. Uh, right. One of the things that's often discussed, you know, from a medical perspective, when people uh, uh, look at cancer and its causes is this stress. Do you think the, the great trauma that you experienced from the loss of your husband in the aftermath of that may have basically induced what happened to you physically? Was that in, in any way, do you think, responsible for the appearance of the cancer at that time? I, As I said earlier, I'm not a big fan. I'm not, I can't say fan. I, I think in Western medicine we overlook the mind-body connection. I mean, I've been reading Larry Dossie and Bernie Siegel, Siegel mm. for decades. Um, yes, I think, one, I was praying every night that God would let me die. You know, what, what do we do? They were basically telling our white blood cells to stand down. Right. <laughs> we right. really are. And I wanted to die. I wanted to be dead, bad. I, that's all I wanted. I just wanted to be dead. And I also think when you start planning out your suicide to the intimate details of where you're doing it, how you're doing it, et cetera, I think we're telling our body, um, we're leaving. You do it, I do it, but we're leaving. So, yes, I think very much we're telling all our little white blood cell, cells and every other thing in our body that that mounts these defenses you know, no, let it let it in. We're we're gonna let this happen. I, I have no doubt about that. And the other interesting aside, I'm in a Facebook group of uh women, uh what's called Sisterhood of Suicide Survivors. Uh we break down. We break down emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and then inevitably physically. And one of the stats I heard from a doctor, and this blew me away, is a disproportionate number of women who have been through trauma. And I'm not talking about your husband dying. I mean, that's rough, but we're talking about suicides, murder, terrible trauma. A disproportionate number of those women have uh, gallbladders removed, appendixes removed, uteruses removed. It's like we just come apart at the seams. So, yeah, I I don't know if anyone's ever done a study between severe trauma and the correlation to uh, disease like this but boy yeah to answer your question yes i have no doubt yeah uh looking at the clock uh, we're going to run out of time before we run out of topic here so i want to move ahead a little bit let's talk about this near-death experience or uh, i always find this near-death experience to be a little bit of a misnomer because it's actually a death experience um i call mine a temporary death experience i didn't come close to death i crossed i crossed the rubicon (laughs) far more appropriate name for it so as you were uh as this was initiated and you were in this blackness and you talked about a, a being that you sensed over your left shoulder and you turned tell me again what you came to know this being as it was it was you but explain it to me again my sense of it was it was the holy ghost or god 
or, or I, that's my sense of it, because the, what was said was, you are the image and likeness. I'm the original. I see. And, and that was just, I still, when I'm having trouble in the middle of the day, I remember, okay, I'm, I'm just the image and likeness. There is an original. So, yeah, I, I think it was the Holy, Holy Ghost or God. I, I don't know what word to ascribe it to, but it was, it was a big, big deal. And you, 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 you find yourself in this, this room of white, and you see the door ahead of you. And you, were you constantly being communicated with by the angels? Did you feel their presence the whole time? I did. Yes, I did. In fact, one of the things, when I was floating in that blackness, one of the thoughts I had was, um, you know, a lot of people talk about the love they feel in, the, in, yeah. in this experience. I, I can't say I felt the love. I felt peace. Mm-hmm. Peace, 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 peace. And, and the thing is, I, I had the great blessing of having a mother who loved me. She died too young, but she loved me dearly. So I knew about love, but I didn't know about peace. Mm-hmm. I've always suffered from profound anxiety. So experiencing that peace, and, and I thought about the Bible verse, uh, Paul says, the peace that passeth all understanding, and I thought, this is what Paul was talking about. There's no way to describe this peace. And that was profound. And I also love that I remembered all my Bible verses, I remembered my <laughs> life, I mean, every my memory was just, like I said, ramped up to 100,000 amps. You... Um immediately when you cross that threshold and i don't mean into the white room i just mean in, actually into the blackness when you were when you left your body you immediately uh had a sense of relief right all that pain physical and emotional pain and agony that you had been suffering for those many many months months immediately lifted from you instantly gone in fact when i was back uh, from the hospital when they let me out of the hospital i went home uh i i flopped open my Bible, and it landed on Psalm 23, and it was like the verse, He restoreth my soul, was highlighted. I mean, it was amazing. I talk about a heavenly experience. And I sobbed. I sobbed for about 45 minutes because I thought God healed me in the place that only God can heal, which was my soul. And I don't mean to diminish the the value and the, the wonderment of a healing, an instantaneous healing of cancer, but to have your soul restored, that was that was the healing. You're in the white room. You see the door. You're you yourself at that moment think, yes, nothing is going to stop me. This is where I need to be. This is this is the the answer I've been asking for. Yet the angel says, no, it's not the answer you've been asking for. What do you think? What were what were your thoughts? I don't know if you can if you could think through that at the moment, but certainly in retrospect, what are your thoughts on that? In terms of the angel saying, in terms of that vision getting me to go back? Just or? that you you had, at that point, really thought that this was the answer to, to your prayers, oh, yeah. right? I mean, you wanted yeah. to be relieved from all of that, those earthly pain and suffering and everything you've been dealing with for all of those months. But the angel says, no, that's this that's not. You can You can decide to do this, but that's not, this isn't the answer. I... I don't know. I my the way it was presented to me was I you know there are no wrong decisions and the beauty part of that is that was one of the one of my prayers was God I can't handle any more decisions and and I think there are no wrong decisions. I mean that that has stayed with me for ever since. Yeah. I think about that a lot. Mm-hmm. That has relieved a lot of decision fatigue. I, the way it was presented to me is and and I those angels can be pretty sneaky by the way <laughs> because I think as a sensitive soul as an empathic soul. What better way to get Rosemary to make a quick U-turn than to show her the pain and suffering of a nurse? So, I, yeah, it wasn't, I didn't say, I can't say that I really had the ability to reason it through. It was, I want to go, I want to go, let me go, please don't make me go back. And then seeing that nurse, and I thought, I 
can't inflict that much pain on another human being. When you came back, when you, you basically, once you made that decision instantly back in your body and you, you became conscious again, you were asked the question, you know, what, what your name, the date, uh, by the nurse that you had just been thinking about momentarily ago, uh, did you recognize what had happened at that point or did that? Oh, ha- heck yeah. You did. You knew. Heck yeah. When I was being, lo- when I was, as soon as I was back in the room and I'm looking around and the, I saw an angel, I saw an angel in the room and I, I, I looked at that angel in the corner of the room, you know, and this is after I'd been resuscitated. I looked at that angel in the corner of the room and I don't know if I said it out loud, but I know I said it and thought. I said, that was sneaky. And I said, Robert's Rules of Order, we have, you know, we need a first and a second before we vote on this stuff. There was no first. There was no second. It was just, boom, we're back. And I also remember thinking, do you know how much energy it takes to die? I went from perfectly healthy to dead in a pretty short period of time. And when I remember this so clearly when I was being loaded, because, man, once I came back, that ER, that ER wanted me out of that, in, out of that space in a second. It felt, I, who knows, it felt like two or three minutes later I was in a hospital, and then they took me to a trauma center. But I remember being loaded into that uh, ambulance and thinking, I just had an NDE. I've spent my whole life reading about them, and I just had one. And it was nothing like I've read about. Nothing. I didn't get a tunnel. I didn't get visits from the fam. I didn't get nothing. But, uh, yes, I remember thinking. And and that's the thing about my book. A lot of people say, oh, you made it up. You're doing it for the money, blah, blah, blah. If I was doing this for the money, I I would, one, I would have sued the hospital, which I didn't. I, I decided to forgive them, too. But secondly, I would have written something that's more traditional. Yeah. I would have this bizarre story of the white room. I would have created something. But anyway, yeah, I hear a lot. I yeah, I've heard a lot from people already who think I'm, you know, just nutty as a fruitcake. Well, there 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 are those, and there those are those types are not part of our audience. Uh, we we've you know, we've had <laughs> we've had a lot of folks on this program who've had similar experiences. You know, the near death experience, and there's these common threads between them, which is just just amazes me, and it, it adds a level of credibility to them that that um, you know that most people don't recognize. I want to talk about Milton for a second, though, because here's a man who stepped in when you needed a friend, and and basically kept you alive for for so long and here he is faced with you dying in front of him in a hospital bed he's asked to leave the room and then you find out he had a visitation from an angel himself now this is an atheist right yeah yes a hardcore atheist (laughs) well i mean that's not something that atheists take very well i can't imagine what was his response to that i mean what did he say about that experience well I tell people he was in the blast radius, which I, I, I mean that. I mean, I, I think that's a great word picture. Um, what's really interesting is he didn't tell me about this until we're out of the hospital. Because, you know, in the hospital, there was still a lot of concern that I, I could go at any time. There was a lot of concern that I wasn't out of danger. So people weren't talking to me a lot. But once I got back home, uh, I was flopped out on the couch. And they said I'd need round-the-clock care for two weeks. So Milton's in the living room. I'm flopped on the couch. His sister Mabel is seated beside him. And so the three of us are chatting, and and Milton tells us this story. And I said, oh, do go on. And I said, so, you know, he told us a story. I said, so what what did that do to your worldview, Milton? And he said, it shattered every single thing I've ever believed. He said, obviously, there's life after death. 
He said, and if there's angels, there must be a God. And he said, I did experience an angel. And, and you know, so this has been three years out now. He still, the man still texts me these beautiful Bible verses. He still shares these, you know, he listens to sermons. I mean, he's, he has become my angel on earth sharing these spiritual insights that are so profound. And, I mean, he's your average, you know, ex-Army, Vietnam-era vet kind of guy, this, you know, this gruff kind of guy. And yet you hear these things, and he says, well, I think if you turn to the book of Matthew and look at the sayings of Jesus, you'll find (laughs) blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's really, it's very dramatic. And so so when we were in the living room talking about this, and Milton told this story, his sister Mabel became very quiet, and she, she spoke, and she said, you know, brother, I've been praying for you for 30 years that you would find out about the love of God. So this man had it coming at him from all angles. He really did. Yeah. He didn't have a chance. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you still talk with Milton, are you still? Yes, we're still very does good he, buddies. Does he, st- does, does he, uh, what are his religious beliefs? Have they continued? You know, I mean, do they? Yes. Yeah, I can't yes. imagine them changing. We talk after about that. this quite a bit. Yeah, um, man, Rosemary, we're almost out of time. I want to talk for just a second about the book itself. You've decided to put this story into a form that people can read. And uh, what what's the message, though, ultimately that you want people to take away when when they get a chance to read the book? Sure, another good question. Yeah, I'm I'm actually putting the finishing touches on the book. I hope to have it up at Amazon probably within 30 days. It's been it's been three years uh, of very hard work. Because my at first I said I'm not writing no stinking book. Um, the message probably is one: uh, when you find out somebody, when you find a loved one has ended their life, go support the person left behind because they're being treated like lepers by society. And um, two, even the darkest, most horrible circumstance. God's light and love can touch and heal. That really is my message. Something somebody told me early on, they said, heal, get yourself healed. You will be healed one day. Get yourself healed. But then go help others heal. So that's really the message of the book is to help others heal. Not everyone who uh, goes through the type of uh, tragedy and trauma that you went through and, uh, you know, maybe they decide that they, their only way out is to end their life, take their life. Um, or maybe get get into some type of uh, a substance abuse or addictions. Not everybody's face or given the opportunity at that door, whatever that door is for them, to decide whether to go through that door or not go through that door. Um, you had the choice. You were able to come back. What is your What is your advice for folks who might be you know starting that a similar journey of trauma and and pain and they, you know, if it continues, they may not end in in such a happy place as you have. But what's your advice to them now as, as they might be entering that dark area themselves? Uh, find that one person you can lean on and lean on them hard. And um, it's pretty humiliating to live out of your car, to not be able to eat, to lose your mind, to have a psychotic break. But let people scoop you up and help you. And the thing is finding people, finding those helpers. Not everybody has a Milton. You know, not everybody has the Good Samaritan. But, yeah, if you can find anybody and let them, let them scoop you off the ground and, and, you know, put you in a shopping basket and take you home, let them do it. And I I wish 
if I were queen of the world, if I had unlimited financial resources, I'd create an advocacy system in the United States. One of the horrible things that happened to me, and happens to so many suicide widows, is we're nabbed by the police as a primary suspect in a homicide investigation. So when you're in the throes of all this horror, you also have to answer questions as, you know, what was the nature of your last argument with your husband? Where were you when yeah. this happened? Was this your gun? Why were your fingerprints on the bullets? You know, mm-hmm. there, we've got to stop this. We, we, we did this to rape victims in the 70s, you know. Well, why were you wearing their shoes? Why right. are you on the street at 2 in the morning? Yeah. But we're still doing it to suicide survivors, which is insanity. Yeah. Um, I Traumatizing wa- them further. I, I, I had an opportunity to watch one of your videos on YouTube. Uh, you were, I think you were addressing a church group or a church parish or something. And you mentioned in that particular talk that Milton actually was, had to withstand five hours of interrogation because he's Correct. the one that found your husband's body, right? Correct. Yeah. It's unreal. And then even my dog. Even my dog, they came, they brought animal control in to haul my little Sheltie off. You know, it looks like Lassie, right? Yeah. They brought an animal control with a noose on the end of a metal rod to haul mm-hmm. off the dog that saw this happen. It had to have chunks of her fur cut out because it had my husband's blood and brain matter in it. Ugh. So, like, this dog hasn't been through enough. So, yeah, they, they come to haul her off. And Milton said, please, please, please don't do this to Rosemary. Don't take Teddy away. And my neighbors, uh, Milton texted my neighbors, my next-door neighbors, and said, come get Teddy. And then the neighbors came out, come over to get Teddy, and the cops tried to stop him. And my neighbor, God bless her, my neighbor basically said, out of my way. <laughs> and she walked right into the house and got the dog and took the dog home. She's the one who cleaned up the dog. You sound like um, this has been, you know, this this journey for you has given you a, a, a far uh, more optimistic outlook on life, your life, the life of others, just just life in general. Um, but is there ever a moment where you regret coming back? Constantly. Really? Constantly. I didn't expect yes. that answer. I know. I, I yeah, I expect I. I uh... I, I try very hard to live in the moment, to enjoy things. I had somebody tell me the other day, I was having a long talk with somebody. He said, you seem very reserved. And well, that's the word that would not have been applied to me before three years ago. But I, I, there's a lot of gravitas in the way I view the world these days. I do try to enjoy the beauty, the beauty in every single thing from a blade of grass to a, you know, the, the half moon at night. I try to enjoy every single thing. But, yeah, I'm, I'm, this, this world is not an easy place to be. And how in the world, when you see heaven, when you feel love, when you feel peace, when you feel joy and contentment, it's still mighty hard to come back to this place. Mighty, mighty hard. In the suicide group I'm on Facebook, I mean, we're constantly hearing about these women who've survived this horrible thing. Now they're dealing with children who are suicidal. That's the thing. When you open that Pandora's box of a spouse ending their life this way, you're telling the kids, hey, look, I found a way out. I found a solution. So, yeah, it's hard. It's, it's just hard. It's, this earth is, you know, thank God. Thank God above. We're typically only here for, you know, 70, 80 years and we're done. This earth is not a fun place for sensitive souls. And once you've glimpsed heaven, she's <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's certainly not a kind place most of the times. Um Rosemary, you've been a fabulous guest. Your story is amazing. Once again, you said about 30 days before the book is finished. Is that your anticipation? That is my hope and expectation, yes. And when it's ready, people will be able to find I know you're also working on a website, I think, too. I think I have a website. Oh, you do? Uh, temporarydeath.com. What is, say it again. Temporarydeath.com is my website, and Chapter 1 of the book is up at the website if anyone wants to read Chapter 1. Perfect. There's a free preview of Chapter 1 at that site. 
perfect. And you said it's temporarydeath.com. <laughs> yes, isn't yeah, that great? Yeah, it is Temporarydeath.com. <laughs> and yeah, there's a little tab at the top and read chapter one. And also there's a picture of Teddy there. So people can, Teddy is still with us. Nice. Teddy's rather elderly, but Teddy is still with us. Rosemary, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and your inspiration with us. Um, both uh, uh, are, are well-placed, and we appreciate your time tonight. Thanks so much. Thank you. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.